Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Just to say that, um, obviously, um, I'm here next Sunday, and then my sabbatical leave kind of starts um, from then till, till August. Um, out of from today till the end of August, I'm going to be here seven times in Macquarie. I'm very thankful. Ian and Helen were in holiday. They even organized their holidays. So they could go on holiday before I went away on sabbatical. Ian's going to be preaching six times. Um, John Favell's coming twice. Graham has kindly arranged to preach once. And Martin Patterson's coming once. So you'll have that. And I'll be here every sort of after three Sundays, I'll be back. So you're not going to rid of me completely. Um, and uh, next week you'll get a wee note of what's happening, but just to let you know. And so because of that, I was thinking of what I might do when the, the seven Sundays I'm going to be here. And when I thought of the letter seven, I thought, well, there's seven churches to the church in the book of Revelation. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's turn to that bit in our Bibles, then we'll pray, and then we'll see what the Lord has to say to us. So it's the book of Revelation, right at the very end of our Bibles. And we're going to be reading the letter, the, the first part of, well, the first letter in this section. And I'll explain a bit more about it in a minute from Revelation chapter 2. But let's pray together first before we read. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Creation speaks forth your praise and also bears witness to who you are. And we thank you, O God, our Father, that we come before a God who is active, proactive, who has revealed himself in word and in flesh, in action and in deed. And we thank you that we can know that within our own lives, even as we gather here. And so speak, Lord, into our hearts. Open our ears, open our eyes, metaphorically, that we might see something of your glory and we might hear something of your truth. As we still our hearts, in your presence, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read this together, Revelation chapter 2, and reading verses 1 to 7. To the angel, or to the messenger of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, 
which is in the paradise of God. Amen. And may God indeed by his spirit bless this reading and our reflections on his word. We live in a day where there's not many of us now would get a letter, a personal letter through the post. As you know, I'm a stamp collector, um, a member of the Lancashire Philatelic Society, and also come to the, the group that meets here on a Monday once a month. And John that comes to the coffee service, who's a member of the old parish, he um, usually once a year is asked to put up a display of British stamps that have been um, produced and sold over the past year. I think last year he reckoned that there was about 80 or 90 separate issues. Exactly. June's making, well, not making a face, but kind of surprised. And you're quite right to be surprised, quite right to be surprised, because it cost him a good few hundred pounds. And he laments, and those of you who know him will know that once he starts lamenting, he does lament quite lengthily. Um, Gavin can testify to that, can't you, brother? Uh, he's a dear soul, but once he gets going about this, he understandably gets quite um, annoyed in a sense, because the British Post Office keep producing these commemorative stamps, so the ones with the pictures on them, not the Queen, but something else, keep producing these commemorative stamps, but very few of them actually ever arrive through our letterbox on an envelope with a franc on them. In fact, in, in the past, traditionally, it was thought that mint stamps and used stamps are of value. At least I hope they are, because that's what my collection has that. Um, the day will be, if stamp collecting carries on, it'll be used stamps that actually will have value. Um, because at least some value, because they've actually been used for what they were meant to. So not many of us now get letters like that through the post office. We do, it's the normal kind of commemorative. Yesterday, when we came in from the prayer meeting, there was an envelope lying. The postman had delivered, the postwoman had delivered an envelope. There was two commemorative stamps on it um, that had been issued last year. And, and it was written to the Reverend Bruce McDowell, and it had church office, and it had my address and everything. And I thought, oh. And I have to say... I have to say, it's, there was something about Easter, I think, on the envelope. And if I, I meant, I had it lying out, but I don't know what I did with it. Um, I had something Easter, and I thought, oh, and I have to confess here. I thought, oh, it's somebody writing a wee note saying how much they enjoyed the Easter services. I thought, that's nice. And I have to say, occasionally, you do get letters through um, and, and things on the, on the internet from people who have expressed appreciation. I thought, oh, that's nice. One of you dear saints. Yep. <laughs> so I opened the letter. And I found inside a tract which says, God condemns the celebration of Easter. And, and then inside a warning about those who do not listen to what the God has said in his word. And then it went on to speak about how the, the Reformed Church, of which we're a part, um, is, is not Reformed because we carry out these Romanish practices and, and are involved in these pagan celebrations. And at great length explained about Easter and all the rest of it, and how, you know, the Spring Festival, all the rest of it. And basically, I have to tell you, friends, if you were at the Easter service, as according to this tract, we're on the road, not just to Rome, uh, which is perhaps one thing, but on the road to hell. Happy Easter to you. None of us like getting letters like that. I wasn't really that bothered. I, I, I've got an idea, actually. I think I might know who it is. Somebody who, lives in the, somebody who lives in the village. Because obviously he was incensed, or she was incensed. I think it was a he. Because um, this is the person, I think, as we once stood outside the church and warned people not to come in because this was a place of idolatry and her heresy. And you spoke to him and rebuked him. So, um, but anyway, um, I think they saw not just one banner, but two banners. And I think they thought that was the last straw, you see. 
And I have to say, we did joke, and this is, doesn't really do this, but, but you know, John was here on and, and, and Monday, Thursday. John's now going to a free church of Scotland, which is, you know, quite conservative in the way. And there was a table with a white cloth and a candle and the silver cup and the flowers and all the rest of it. And I did joke that we were going to take a photograph of him administering the sacrament and send it to the principal clerk of the free church of Scotland. <laughs> It might not do anything for his hope idea to transfer into that denomination. Um, but yes, we celebrate Easter. We don't like to be told that, oh, well, according to this man, it's a, a road to ruin. We like to get a letter that encourages us and that's nice and that says nice things. Well, we're going to be looking off and on over the coming weeks at these letters contained in the book of Revelation. Of the seven letters, six of them start off with a positive note. It's true, isn't it? If you want to, even if you are going to say something critical, you want to, I mean, the guy could at least have said, well, your grounds look quite nice or, you know, or something like that, you know? You usually try and start off on a positive note. Six of these seven letters, one doesn't, we'll come to that eventually. Um, six of these seven letters start off on a positive note. And while I'm not sure who sent the letter yesterday, as I say, so be it. This is very clear as to who sends this letter. The context is, of course, the whole book of the Revelation. If you want to look at just chapter one of the book, flip the page over, and it says the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so that introduction to the whole book of Revelation tells it, that tells us this is a revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave Jesus to show to his servants. And indeed, later on in verse 9 of that first chapter, we read, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that arose in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was in prison, in a sense, in the island prison of Patmos. On the Lord's day, that's the Sunday, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so here we have the context. This is a message given by Jesus Christ, given to John. We're told it happened on the Lord's Day, and some of you maybe have been. I've been on the island of Patmos and was taken to the cave, supposedly, where John was imprisoned. And certainly, as we went there early in the morning, the sun was just rising over that part. Is it the GNC that's at that part? Whatever part of the Mediterranean is there. And, and certainly, the sunlight flooded into the cave that's now, of course, been turned by the, the Greek Orthodox into a, a kind of church. And, and, and it was on the Lord's Day, as John was in this cave, or certainly somewhere in the island of Patmos, he had this vision, this word given to him from the Lord. And quite specifically, it's to be sent to seven churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor, of Turkey, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, some of us, I think, how many of us have been to Ephesus? 
Some of us have been to Ephesus. Yes, one or two of us. The Robertsons, the other Robertsons, they've also been. I've been to Ephesus. Um, and Ephesus, this is the first of the letter. Ephesus um, was in, in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Um, it's inland from the port of, is it Kushidaki, you call it? The port of Turkey. It was, in its day, a massive city. If you visit Ephesus today... Um, you can see it. It's very impressive. I mentioned to you before, um, the first Odeon um, wasn't in Renfield Street in Glasgow as a cinema. It was there, the big public theatre. You can still see the facade of that theatre, the large um, coliseum or auditorium for all the various activities and sports that were held. You can see the streets and the, and the, the very fancy houses that lined the streets of the wealthy business people. It was a merchant city, though now inland in the day when this letter was written in the early part of the first century, it was a port, a trading port. And goods were transferred. It was the main bastion, in a sense, of the Roman might and empire in that part, the eastern part of their empire. It was very cosmopolitan. Wealthy people lived there, but also very poor people. It was also a place where all sorts of things were experimented in and tried out. The first recorded abortion of a, of a baby took place in Ephesus. It's not saying the claim to fame, but that's the claim to fame. One of the things that was particularly marked for, and some of you will remember this from school, was that just outside of Ephesus, really up on the hill, was the great temple to the goddess Diana or the goddess or the goddess Artemis. It was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And so massive was it, you can still see some of the remains, um, not in Ephesus, say, in the hillside outside of Ephesus. You can still see some of the massive stone pillars. It was so massive that it could be seen as the boat sailed towards Ephesus. And indeed, it was used as a, a lighthouse at times. And this temple, one of the great wonders of the ancient world, not only was wonderful because of its size, but because of its opulence, because of its color, because of its gilding, and because of just its, its beauty. But it hid very dark things, the goddess of love. And so temple prostitution was rife. And indeed, prostitution of all types, we'll just say, was rife. And all sorts of practices and procedures were done in the name of devotion to the goddess Diana. If you want just to turn back a wee bit to the book of Acts, now, I invite you, if you haven't read this part before in the book of Acts, to do so more when you get home. But just to fill in the details, it's important um, for us to, to get this. In Acts chapter 19, we read that Paul took the road through the interior of Turkey and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, verse 2, and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? And they said, John's baptism, that is the baptism of John the Baptist. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. And in hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. And many people would say this is like a mini Pentecost. 
a, a, a redoing, in a sense, of the Pentecost, the first Pentecost, when the Spirit fell upon the disciples. And this is an advancement of God's kingdom into this very pagan, very Roman, in many ways very advanced, but also spiritually very dark world. And we read in verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue there, spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe, and publicly maligned the way. And interesting enough, that again is a title given to the believers, the followers of the way. And if you've been to Ephesus, you'll know that there's a massive road, which was actually known as the way, which ran from the center of Ephesus right down to the port, the main high street, the main almost motorway down. You can still see the ruts on the the stone, the, the cobbles, where the, 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 not the lorries, but the, you know, the chariots and all the rest of it went up and down, and that, and, and they were known as those who followed this way, this direct way, Jesus was saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Some people maligned the way, Paul left them, he took the disciples with him, and had discussions dealing in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. A massive beginning of mission. God opening up a new door, a new work in, a, in an area. I mean, apart from after Rome, one of the key cities of the empire, and God is at work. He's opening up a way. In the same way as the Jewish people had come, the same way the message John the Baptist had got there, so the message of Christianity had got there, building on all of that, and was now going to spread out through the empire. Now, God, we're told, did extraordinarily miraculous things through Paul, verse 11, and a whole host of different things happened. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, but the result of that was there was a riot, verse 23, about that time there rose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers and relative trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we received a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of the people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia, the gospel's going out. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger not only that a trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed on her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, there's a massive uproar. There's a riot, a public riot, riot, and even people who were Jewish got involved in all of that and got up with all of that, and Paul is actually in danger of his life. Now, as I say, we need to read through, um, but in chapter 20, we read that the uproar ended. Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and sent out for Macedonia. He left. But in that city, there was obviously spiritual powers at work. There was a power of the gospel. God was at work. People were hearing and seeing and believing. Miraculous things were being done. But wherever God worked, there is always a reaction. There's always going to be a reaction. A battle's not against flesh and blood. Paul tells the church in Ephesus. A battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this present age. And, and so whenever the Spirit of God has worked, that stirs a reaction. Uh, to some, it'll be the savor of life. 
It'll be something will draw them to Jesus, and they'll want to find out more and, and become a follower of the way, of the way of Jesus. But for others, especially where there's vested interest, where there's money, and where there's status, and where there's position, and where there's security, and all these kinds of things, you know, the business was going to be threatened, Ephesus, then there can be a reaction, oh, we will not have this man rule over us, we will not have this message impact on our life and living. And Paul's preaching in Ephesus led to a church being formed there, but also led to a reaction. And that battle must have been going on. Sorry to spend time on this, but it's important because I'm pretty sure not all of us will know the whole story behind Ephesus. Acts 20, later on, Paul returns to Ephesus. And we read in verse 17, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And after telling them how that when he was with them, you know, verse 18, how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came to the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I had not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Then he says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Then picking up verse 26, Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you, night and day with tears. Now, I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. And so, Paul's saying, I've been faithful. I preached the gospel. The church has been formed. There has been growth. But to the leaders of the church, be on your guard, because false apostles, false teachers will come who will seek to distort the truth and draw away disciples after them. And you know, my friends, times do not change. Down through the history of the church, wherever the way of Jesus has been made known, then one of the ways in which there is a spiritual counterattack is that there is false teaching. Perhaps the most subtle of false teaching is just to take things a wee bit too far either this way or that way. And that was the case in the early church. Either, well, Jesus has come, and you're saved from your sins. So, you don't really need to worry anymore about what you do in the flesh and the body, because that doesn't really matter. After all, the more you sin, so these false teachers would say, just in case you think this is the truth, so these false teachers would say, the more your sin, in many ways, the more you're giving glory to Jesus and showing how good Jesus is by forgiving you all the sins. So, therefore, just, you know, just get on with it and live, because that doesn't really matter. Or the very opposite side, which is, well, you're called to be holy and to right and to be like Jesus. And you know, the law that Jesus gave, the Old Testament law, that's still in force. And so, for instance, you guys there, I'm sorry, but you're going to get the snip. 
and you women, well, you're going to have to live in a certain kind of way and be subject to your husbands in the way that in the Jewish household they'll be subject to the husbands. And as for what you eat, out are the burgers and the pork and everything else. And here, this is what you are to eat, live, and do. Here's the regulations. And by the way, I, as a spiritual leader, this, again, this is the false teachers, I, as a spiritual leader, I have this insight from God that tells me quite specifically, for instance, what you're to do and how you're to behave. And you've, if you're going to be a true follower of the way, you've got to do what I tell you. I don't think that would work, brother. But you see what I mean? The two extremes. One either, it's like this, or one, it's like this. That's why Paul says to the church in Ephesians, do not be tossed about by every wind and wave, like a boat in a storm this way and that way. And times haven't really changed. And both from the liberal left theologically, and yes, I'm afraid to say for the fundamentalist right theologically, there are pressures to cause the church to either go this way or that way. And the church in Ephesus, just in case you wonder, well, okay, the church in Ephesus, back to Revelation now, the church in Ephesus is commended for actually standing firm. Verse 2 of chapter 2. I appreciate that took quite a wee while to explain, but as I say, I'm very much aware that for some of us, oh yes, we know the story. Others of us, this is all you. So in chapter 2 of Revelation, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And later on in verse 6, the latter part of verse 6, it says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There is a wee bit debate as to what these Nicolaitans were like. But if you want to find out a wee bit more of possibly what they were like, then when you go home, because we don't have time, well, I, I have to all the day, but you might not, then read the letter of Jude, the one just before the book of Revelation, because that gives you some insight into some of their practices and of their perversions, okay? So if you want to find out a wee bit more, it's probable, probable that the Nicolaitans followed on or carried out the practices found in the book of Jude, the warning there against false teaching and false practices. And so the church is commended for resisting and rejecting. Indeed, Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, stated, quoting him now, something that the church fathers going to quote him, that the church had become so well taught that no unorthodox sect could take hold that the church had become so well taught that no unorthodox sect could take hold. And can I just, simply in my own experience, can testify just to how I, I have known people, I'm very careful because I don't want to insult anybody's tradition within the church, but I've known people who have gone from one tradition, well, let's explain it because you won't know what I'm talking about, from a very conservative, I'm sorry to say folks, brethren background, and have swung from that to becoming, dare I say, 
full-blown, swinging from the chandeliers, Pentecostalists. And I, as somebody in the middle, sometimes think, how's that happened? Going from there to here. I would suggest it's because of a lack of clarity about the teachings of the faith. Notice, go back to Jude. Notice what he says. Verse 3 of the one chapter. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's people. Notice that. I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. And it's that understanding of what the faith is about. What's the core values of the Christian faith? It's often a lack of understanding of what those core values are that causes believers and the church to pick up on secondary or indeed tertiary things about, for instance, baptism or about the gifts of the Spirit or anything like that. And if these things then become primary things and they become vital, it's like you've discovered a new toy and it's so radically different from the old garbage that you had before that you just go for it completely and that's often why churches and indeed people swing from one to the other. I've also known people who theologically were very conservative, who are now theologically very liberal. I don't know many who are theologically liberal who have become very theologically conservative. But these swings, well, a church like ours is called to stand very clearly in the middle, to hold that which is given to us, the truths of the faith, and not to be tossed about or pulled this way or that way by secondary, tertiary, or sometimes downright wrong things. The church in Ephesus was commended for not doing that. And it's vital that we hold on to that, especially in a day where consumer Christianity on one side says, well, really, it's the high, it's how you feel, it's, you know, the smoke machine and all the rest of it, and that's what really keeps you going from one week to the next. And if you don't get that, then you're kind of... Or a very legalistic, very tight, very kind of... Brr, brr, type of Christianity both of which are in our society. And indeed, I could take you to churches in Glasgow which would present both extremes. We need to test everything and be on our guard against being pulled this way or that way. Let's sing together. appreciate that's quite a lot to take on. So let's sing together a hymn that reminds us of what is vital which is that we come in joy and wonder to meet our Lord today. We come in quiet expectation to listen and to pray. We lift our hands towards Him. Our hearts leap up in praise.
for he's the great creator, the God of endless days. And this is a hymn we're singing to tune we know, and very well goes through the real core substance of the faith. And we'll stand to sing. And so the church is commended for resisting false teaching and false practices and testing those who come with such teaching. But how do we test? Well, we have to know that faith once given to the saints. We have to have a knowledge of that. And especially, as Paul told the elders in Ephesus, the leaders of the church have to have a knowledge of that so they can test what's said and what's done. And although we, in some ways, out here in the sticks, in a small congregation out here, as I say, in, in one way, in terms of the kingdom in the middle of, you know, nowhere, but nonetheless, even in a fellowship list, I can tell you that over the years, there have been one or two people who have passed through that door, and I have had to nicely but firmly show them the door. You might not know who these people are, because they were only here for a day, a Sunday or two, but as soon as I met them, I knew that there was something not kosher about them. And one has to guard the flock of God. But, but, what does Jesus say against them? Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Notice, this is the first letter to the first church on the list, to the first church of Christ in Ephesus. I suppose we could call ourselves the first church of Christ in Addison. That would be a bit ostentatious. But this is the first church of Christ in Asia Minor, in Ephesus. And Paul, being there, the church is established. Tradition has it that John became the bishop of Ephesus. Again, if you go to Ephesus, they're desperate today. I never went to see, what is it you go and get told to go and see? Mary's house. Similarly, some we shack up in the hills where the Virgin Mary was supposed to be, and John looked at and all this kind of stuff. Well, we never bothered. I was with the Bible Society, and we were too kosher for that. So, um, but the tradition has it that John was the bishop of Ephesus. Now, I would love this morning, but that clock keeps moving on. You again, if you go and read First John when you get home, the first letter of John, not John's gospel, first letter of John, you'll see that he does emphasize truth, but also tradition has it. There is a very old man, and John was, this John, the John that saw the vision, that when he died in his own bed or wherever he was, he was reputed of saying, it's only tradition, what did he say? Love one another. John, the great apostle of love, some people have described him. That shouldn't surprise us, the importance of that word love. And the word used here for love is not some sentimental kind of, ah, you know, but it is that agape love, that self-giving love, which is the very heart of the gospel. That shouldn't surprise us. What does Jesus say when he was asked about the greatest commandments? Then when we looked at the commandments, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and might. And love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the heart, the heart of the Christian faith is a God who in Jesus Christ wants to be known to us. A God who engages with our minds, who fills our minds with truth, but wants to engage our hearts, our spirits, and fill us with that very love of God which caused him in the first place to give his only son. It's as felt as well as being telt. 
It's to engage with the emotions. It's to stir the heart. And it's to be expressed in an intimate way, drawing from us not only outward conformity, but inward devotion. And the sad thing is, sometimes we can be, and this would not be true of this fellowship here, but again, after 30 years as a minister with different backgrounds and experiences and knowing what goes on in the bigger picture of the church, there are sometimes churches which can be very kosher as far as the truth is concerned. Dot every I and cross every T and make sure that you obey it. And if you don't, you're out in your ear. But often are hard and cold and critical and judgmental. The whole argument in the New Testament, and Paul spends a lot of time, especially in some of the churches that had quite a lot of Jewish converts in them, churches like in Galatia and all the rest of it, is that the law, keeping the rules can simply confirm and affirm our pride. I do it the right way, and you don't, and it's my job to tell you and to show you, and if you rub your nose in it, and it can feed not a godly nature, but a sinful and selfish nature. And obviously within the church in Ephesus, despite the great blessings of that church, despite the willingness to suffer persecution and hardships, as is mentioned here, remember we're writing now and thinking towards the end of the first century and the great persecutions that began to hit the church there. In the midst of all of that, look at what Jesus says. If you don't stop going down that road of coldness towards me and indeed towards others, I will come to you, notice he says, and remove your lampstand from its place. What does he mean by that? Well, again, you need to read more. And I'm just aware just how much we take for granted that we know and we don't all know. The picture of the lampstand, which is pictured in chapter 1. Remember, I mentioned about Jesus appearing to John and everything else, when verse 12 of chapter 1, we tur John turns around, and hears the voice that's speaking to him, and I see seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, that's sacred number seven, seven stars, and come out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. You might read that and think, flip, what's that? Well, remember the disciples, James and John and Peter, the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? And they got a glimpse of Jesus. Well, that was, they saw, actually through a glass, through their sunglasses, a picture of that Jesus. Not a different Jesus, but it's the Jesus that is the Lord. Yes, who became obedient and in frail flesh lived and loved and died and rose again. But we must never lose sight that that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, the one who spoke and brought everything into being, the one that the book of Revelation goes on to tell us holds the scroll of human history. This is the Lord of glory. This is the mighty King of kings. This is the one who's speaking to his church, his bride. Again, Paul in Ephesians, in the letter to Ephesians, tells us Christ loved the church, this bride, and gave himself for the church. 
And so this is the boss that's speaking. And all these lampstands and everything else. And again, there could be great speculations about everything. But basically, what Jesus is saying is, if you don't buck up and stop your hard-hearted, cold-heartedness, I'm going to come and take out the lampstand, the sign, the symbol, the presence, or the symbol of my presence in the midst. And up and down our land, there's churches that are closed. There's churches that are still functioning, but barely so. And when you walk in, you go amongst them. And I'm not talking here about any UF churches in case Isabel's thinking of a few. But the other ones I've been in over the years, and they're dead, dead, cold. Don't mean the heat doesn't work. There's just no warmth. Why? Because the presence of the Lord has departed. 20 years ago, and a month or two, when Elizabeth first came, I'd been to the church to see her wee spy round the Sunday that the window was dedicated for Sir James Highgate. And we came back and we got taken to the church. So the seats and all the rest, it was very different from the way it is now. But we could both testify soon. We walked into this building, there was a warmth. I don't mean that the managers had put the heat on. There was a warmth. But that warmth is a sign that the Lord is in our midst. That warmth of welcome, that love for each other, that care and concern, that and truth, love and truth are to hold and to be held together. It's not loving to say, oh, it doesn't really matter. Just go and do whatever you want to do because at the end of the day, God's not really that bothered. But nor is it loving kind of say, right, you either do this or you're out. And the church in Ephesus had forsaken that love. But as we finish, notice what Jesus says, verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, again, I'm conscious that we can read these things and some of us say, why? We know what that means. Many of us don't. So let's just, just as we draw to a close, turn back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, in verse 21, now again, invite you to read more when you go home. You know, the Lord's Day, it's easy to say, but I suppose it really should be a day where we spend time reading the Bible, reflecting, meditating on things in the midst of busy lives, perhaps. And the fall has happened. Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. They've eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And there's all the symbolism there of the Lord clothing us, not just physically with skins, but ultimately clothing us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God seriously taking the issue of sin, and this is God in Revelation promising that those who have followed the way faithfully, that judgment, that separation, that alienation, that death, which is a consequence of our sinful nature as well as our sinful acts, that will be banished. The gate will be opened. He only was good enough to unlock the gate of heaven. Jesus Christ. And the new heaven and the new earth that the book of Revelation goes on to speak about, God's people can now eat of the tree of life and therefore live in renewed fellowship with a God who desires to walk with us in the garden in the cool of the day. That's what's in offered. I mean, the very beginning of the Bible and the very end of the Bible. This is God's full. Whole Paul talks about giving the whole counsel of God. Well, you can't get much more whole than from page one to page whatever at the end of the Bible. This is the whole story. This is the whole picture. This is the whole God of glory and might who in Jesus Christ makes it possible for the curse of sin to be dealt with and the separation from God to be resolved and for us to be brought and to be able to eat, as he says right back in that letter, to have the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We do feel for Pauline and for Evan, who's not only grandpa died a fortnight ago, but whose grand died this past week. But both of these saints who worshipped with us and sat towards the back when they were able to be here, both these saints had a firm faith. Last Sunday afternoon, as I was in the Royal visiting Rita and holding her hand and talking away, she told me how, as a girl of 12, she had given her heart to Jesus in the Gospel Hall up at Cote Dyke. And I said, well, you remember, I mentioned this on Sunday night, do you remember the old, this is where my, my background comes in, do you remember the old song, Shall We Gather at the River? Oh, yeah, she said, with a wee rendition of Shall We Gather at the River. And at the end, I said, well, Rita, I'll see you again. She said, yes, and she came out at the side of the river. Whoever endures, whoever is faithful, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. That should fill our hearts with love, with a love for a God who first loved. And they should stir our hearts, therefore, to love one another. You are merciful to me. You are merciful to me. You are merciful to me. We'll remain seated as we sing this and as our offering. We do come, O oh God, our Father, to seek your mercy. We thank you what John tells us in his letter that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that your servant John tells us 
that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so we thank you for that truth. We thank you for how you have revealed yourself in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that in these days we are called to be faithful and to follow in his way. Turning neither to the right nor to the left. But we also hear your word to us which calls us to love one another. The same John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence because we have a love for each other. This is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. And so we hear your word, we hear the example of the church at Ephesus, we take its challenge and we ask, O Holy Spirit, that you would continue, as you have done, you would continue to build up this fellowship in the way of truth and in the way of love, that we're not tossed about by every wind and wave, pulled this way or that way, the things which may be significant to us personally in our own walk with God, we would see these things as being secondary to what is of the essence in all our walk with God. Faith and love and trust and obedience. So, Holy Spirit, take your word. Continue to apply it into our minds and to our hearts, especially I'm conscious there are some of us here who all this is different. We don't really know the book of Revelation and, and this bit and that bit, and it could be quite confusing. I do pray that you would help us to have the mind of Christ, beginning to put these bits of the jigsaw together so that we get a glimpse of how great is our God and his purposes of salvation. So take these gifts as a token of our love for you and own them and use them for your kingdom purposes, we pray, all for the glory and honor of Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.